Welcome to Dream Business Radio, the place to create your dream business now. Get ready for some inspiration, some encouragement, some proven business building strategies, and a couple of new ideas that you haven't even thought of. It's time to leave slow and steady as she goes to the other entrepreneurs, because this program is all about speed and fast results. And now, broadcasting from his floating home somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, the dream business coach himself, Jim Palmer. Well, hello there, everyone. This is Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach. Welcome to this wonderful interview. We've got a really special guest today, and um, we've been really cleaning up lately with guests. So, uh, I don't know, Eric. the The bar's set kind of high, but let's let's hope we don't break our winning streak with a with a cool show. I'm well, te- s- sounds good, Jim. I'm ready. Let's do it. I'm teasing you, of course, folks. This episode is brought to you by the Build Your Dream Business Now Facebook group. That is my private. Um, free Facebook group where I'm doing so much sharing and content and training. In fact, as Eric and I are talking in another couple hours, I'm doing free training on 10 mistakes most entrepreneurs make that keeps them broke. So uh, join us at the uh, Build Your Dream Business Now Facebook group where you can remember the handy URL was dreambizgroup.com, dreambizgroup.com. Let me tell you about my uh, special guest. Eric Brotman is the president and managing Principal at Brotman Financial Group. It's an independent firm assisting clients with wealth creation, preservation, and distribution. Uh, He began his financial planning practice in Baltimore in 1994, not too far from Eagle Country, so that's pretty cool. And he founded Brotman Financial Group in 2003, and they provide investment, retirement, estate planning, insurance, comprehensive financial planning, etc. Been in business 15 years, told me he's got um, eight financial planners in there. He's also uh, the author of Retire Wealthy, the tools you need to help build lasting wealth on your own. Or with a good financial planner, such as Eric. How you doing, Eric? I couldn't be better, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Hey, um, I, I always like to ask my guests first off, if uh, did you have anybody inspire you to go the entrepreneurial route, like your father, grandfather, or grandmother, or mother, or are you kind of a first-generation entrepreneur? I'm a first-generation entrepreneur, although I was pointed in this direction as a freshman in high school. Wow. Uh, it was sort of an interesting thing. I, I did a, a battery of aptitude testing at a place called Johnson O'Connor Research Center. I spent two days down in D.C. Doing, a, doing some aptitude testing, and they pointed me in the direction of entrepreneurship really, really young. So I, I had this itch uh, and also the notion that it was my calling at 14. Wow. And so you went to college and um... – I don't know. Is that uh, is that accounting school, or is that you know all to do with numbers? And then you go into financial planning, or what does that what does that look like? Uh, well, I I, uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania, so I spent some time in Philadelphia, and I was uh, an English major because what else would a financial planner do than study uh, 18th century romantic poetry? Um, <laughs> I, I found absolutely no correlation so far, except that uh, I do love to communicate and write and and speak, and so that's been helpful. But uh, I studied English and psychology in school, and then went on and got a master's at the American College up in Bryn Mawr, PA and did that in financial services. So I got my financial training and all the math uh, after I had graduated from undergraduate school. Okay. So 15 years ago, you started your firm. Were you working for a competitor or somebody else in that field, and then you just got the itch to get going yourself, or what? Uh, I was a junior guy in, a, in another independent firm. So I had watched 
him build a business, and I, I knew how to do it. Uh, and the business was going in a little bit of a different direction where they were going to start working only with uh, what I would call a, a high or ultra high net worth families. And I represented a lot of families who were up and coming. They were a lot of younger folks. And so it really wasn't the right fit for me once they, they made that adjustment. And so what we decided, and part of the impetus for this was determining that rather than making this some kind of divorce, we would make it a graduation. And I actually split off and started my own firm in 2003, which was a, a wonderful experience and scary as heck, and we can talk about that. But it was a wonderful experience, but I started it in such a way that I had the blessing of my former firm. Uh, I bought out their mutual interest. We, we did some business together, uh, and we were able to part in a way that there was no acrimony. Well, very cool. I mean, that's pretty rare, actually. And but. That, I don't want to go down that road, but I do want to go down the road of scary because you know it's okay, one of my books is okay to be scared but never give up. Tell me about your early uh, your early years. Well, the, the first thing I did was borrow money from everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this bootstrapping concept was was legit. Uh, I knew that I needed space. I knew that I needed people. I knew I needed technology, uh, and no bank would talk to me whatsoever because you need a two-year track record before most of them will even will even discuss this with you. So I borrowed against everything. I borrowed against credit cards, life insurance policies, my home. I even borrowed from my mom, which I got to tell you, Jim, was the scariest part of the whole thing because you've got to keep a good credit history there. So uh, even though her interest rate was favorable, I paid her back first. Well, good for you. <laughs> you got to take care of mom. So the whole thing about um, financial planning, and obviously I, th I guess the over overarching deal is financial planning, so therefore you can retire. As I like to say, you can retire and not be a greeter at Walmart when you're 90, right? That's kind of a goal for, for some yeah. people. Um, did you specifically focus on that area or just, you know, covering a lot of different bases as well. Well, my, my specialty personally has been multi-generational family uh, planning. So a lot of wealth transfer, a lot of planning for older and younger generations. And that to me has been fun. That's one of the reasons why we don't do corporate work and we work with families. I get a whole lot more satisfaction out of making grandma happy than, than some CEO. So right. that, has been, uh, that has been good for me. In terms of the, the financial independence piece, I think retirement, frankly, needs to be reconsidered. I think the, the way we define retirement in this country is pitiful, and I, I think the way you're doing what you're doing is perfect because it makes no sense to retire in the sense of disappearing or withdrawing. It makes a total uh, sense to me to make it, again, a graduation where you go on to the 2.0 version of yourself and you have financial independence and can work on something that makes you happy. I don't think anyone should retire, get the gold watch, and then sit home and watch television. That sounds terrible. It does sound terrible, and that's kind of what we, you know, my wife Stephanie and I did. Is you know, I'll, I'll be sixty in uh, June, and so we're not that far from you know retirement. Hopefully, although I can't, I can't sit still for two minutes, so I don't think I'll ever actually retire. But what I do as a business coach, I can do anywhere, and so you know, there's not many people uh, in your field who would say, yeah, Jim, you're so close to retirement. Why don't you take a crap ton of money and buy a big boat as, as, your, as your best investment right now? But if you think about it, what we really wanted to do is, is live this big adventure, as we say, and we're traveling up and down the East Coast and just seeing different parts of the country, meeting some really cool people. Um, and we're not waiting until, you know, our bones are so brittle. By the time I jump in the boat, I'll break my leg, you know. So we're, we're enjoying this part of our life because I, I really believe that sooner or later is going to come a time when we won't, it won't be practical for us to actually do what we're doing. Well, there's, there's a whole lot of difference between 
um, working for someone else and working for yourself. And when you're working for someone else, even if you love what you do, there's always this sense that you're, you're paycheck to paycheck on some basis. And, and I think what you've done, while, while not everyone should go buy a boat, certainly that's not the advice we'd render. And, uh, you know, they say the best two days in a boat owner's life is the day they buy and the day they sell their boat. So I, I don't know if that's true. but It's true. Um, it, it, it's an expensive uh, hobby and lifestyle for sure. But that's your thing. And if, if you can chase your passion and you can continue to work uh, and make a living and make a difference as a coach and doing what you do and you can do it, uh, you can do it from the harbor, that's, that's breathtaking. That's great. Why not? Um, you know, we have clients in 25 states and a lot of those relationships, you know, we don't see all the time because geography is what it is. But uh, folks move and, and lives change and families move. And I just think it's, it's great to be able to, to use the technology that we have and work from any place. Eric, what does it mean to graduate into retirement? Graduating into retirement is a concept that I came up with simply to redefine what it means to retire and to make sure that you're moving towards something instead of away from something. So if you think about it, we, we spend a couple of years in undergraduate school in a lot of cases, maybe there's grad school, but the idea of graduating, while it's the end of school, it's the beginning of the next adventure. In retirement, it's the end of what is perceived by many as their last adventure. I remember Bobby Bowden used to get pressured to retire all the time. You're, you know, Florida State, they said, why don't you retire? He said, because the, the only milestone I have left isn't one I'm looking forward to. Hmm. And, and that makes sense to me. So the idea to me is you get to a point where you can graduate to a different stage of your life. And whether, whether you're still working for money or not depends on your situation. If you're fortunate enough and you've planned well enough to be in a situation where you're financially independent, the next chapter of your life when you graduate from your, your traditional work, it might be volunteerism, it might be grandkids, it might be any number of things. It might also be starting a consultancy, it might, it might be buying a franchise and doing something else for a living, but it's definitely a, a going towards something. It's having something to look forward to and be excited about. People who retire in the traditional sense and don't have a plan for life don't thrive and they don't live very long. That's you true. Know, you, you have to have something to excite you. If you don't have a reason to get out of bed every morning, you will eventually stop doing it. And it's not worth it. It's awful. Yeah, I don't want to open a whole political can of worms here, but I think what's going on also is people think, I mean, a lot of people assume they're going to be able to count on Social Security and live off of that. And that's really, first of all, it's it's not guaranteed. It might be a little more, uh, you know, slightly a sure thing for someone in my age group but if you're 30 or 40 holy smokes forget about it that that I, do, you, do you roughly feel the same way or well social security when it was created was created to be a last resort for people who were extremely elderly and you know now you look at 62 65 67 even 70 not only isn't it extremely elderly you're talking about people who in many cases are active and working and thriving and doing great things. So it was designed to be a last resort for folks who were at the end of their lives. And so I, I think the social security system can't continue the way it is. Uh, there will have to be changes. All of them are third rails politically. Yeah. So the only way you can make effective change to social security, unless it's against such duress that you have no choice, is to be someone who is not running for office or running for reelection because they will, you will get vilified and voted out of office. Here's, here's my hope. My hope is that Social Security will, will be in a position to take care of the boomer generation. 
and then the millennials, and I, I'm neither, I'm a Gen Xer, but I, I then think the millennials are likely to change the world in a lot of positive ways, and one of them is going to be rethinking what Social Security means. I think Gen X is in deep trouble. We, we have the smallest voting block ever. In other words, we have no power. We're going to do what the boomers want, and then we're going to do what the millennials want. Yep. But I think the millennials have a, a much different sense than their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did about the idea of working for one company for 30 years and having a pension and having Social Security and, and then saving a little bit of money. Millennials are free agents from go, and they know it, and they have an uncanny ability. Some of them do what's, uh, what's referred to now as the side hustle, which is sort of that second job to pay down student loans. Some of them have a really uncanny ability to, to not only move from career to career or job to job, but to constantly be entrepreneurial. And I don't think they're relying on their company or their government for anything. I think they're on their own and they know it. And they're the first generation that's going to grow up that way and they're going to get it. And so Social Security will change, whether it's means tested or whether they change the age or whether it's, uh, you know, or, or whether it's only for certain folks. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. I know that if, if, if I was going to do the math, I could solve it, I believe, in, in, in an hour. Yeah, but but I couldn't do it and and not be a target politically by a huge group of people. It's it's too hot a potato. I mean, folks, it, it, you know, there's groups of folks who say it's an entitlement and you should get rid of it. And there's other folks who say, hey, it's not an entitlement. We've paid for it for the last 45 years. Right. And they're both right. <laughs> exactly. You know, nobody's wrong. It's just you look at it from your own perspective, and folks who've been paying into it say, hey, I deserve this. And folks who haven't been paying into it say, you might deserve it, but it just doesn't exist. It's not there. And the battle between generations is going to be waged between the 20-somethings and the 60-somethings over the next 20 years. How can parents teach their kids to be more financial, financially literate? I mean, some, and we talk about kids. I don't know if we're talking about young kids or 18 to 27, whatever. But some of them don't even know what a checkbook is or how to balance a checkbook. You just stick that piece of plastic in everywhere you go. Everywhere. The, the money just comes out magically. What's that conversation look like? I mean, I really think that needs that. And I think, unfortunately, we cut, we count on the schools for too much. But I think we ought to have some sort of a basic financial training in high school. Um, you're preaching to the choir. We, I, I have I have testified before the Senate in the state of Maryland, trying to lobby for uh, financial literacy education. I serve on a on a comp, on the Comptroller's Advisory Council. Comptroller Peter Francho is a is a major advocate for for financial literacy education. And we've run into all kinds of issues, and most of them, again, are political. I haven't heard anyone say it's a bad idea. But the teachers don't want to teach it. First of all, they don't know it well enough. Second of all, the union doesn't want the legislature to, 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 um, to legislate curriculum because that's a slippery slope. What's next? And so there's this incredible hot potato that happens in any kind of hall of government that makes it difficult to, to do anything. So we're seeing nonprofits handle this. We're seeing organizations like Junior Achievement who are doing incredible work. We're seeing uh, the Maryland Coalition for Financial Literacy um, and, and other organizations do these kinds of things. The biggest problem, the biggest reason parents don't teach their kids how to do this is because the parents don't know. True, yeah. Eric, does it, I'm, gosh, we're halfway through our interview and I got so much to ask you, so does it still make sense to own a home? I mean, at one point that's like your biggest, you know, your biggest investment in real estate. I, I presume real estate is still a fair, pretty safe, uh, you know, asset. Is that true or, or is that, cha is that changing also? Uh, real estate's a great investment if you don't live in it. 
Mm, oh. uh, if you don't live in it, it's a profit center and it creates opportunities. If you live in it, it's generally an expense and it's more for, uh, in my opinion, it's more for uh, psychological reasons. It's more about nesting and feeling like you're home than it is about finance. I think anybody who buys a house thinking they're going to uh, live in it for a few years and then move to the next one and make money, they're, they're deluding themselves. Um, you spend so much more as an owner than a renter. I mean, and whether you're talking about appliances or whether you're redoing bathrooms and kitchens or driveways or, or roofs, it, it never ends. And so I think a house is generally a lousy investment. I still think it's worth doing if you're putting down roots and you have a family and you're in a community and you want that, that neighborhood. But I, I do think we're, we're seeing less and less millennials get excited about it because they might be working in San Jose today and Dallas tomorrow. They, it makes no sense to buy. I did see an article somewhere about that. You mentioned millennials before that they don't want to own a home. They just want to rent or go live wherever they can. And they want to be totally mobile, which speaks to also the, the career and things like that. Um, so what should, you know, what factors should millennials even consider when they're looking for a job? Because they're not, you know, 20, 30, 40 year career. I don't that that's that's long since dead. But what are they looking for? Um, well, I think they're looking for income but they're also looking for flexibility and freedom. I think the millennials are, are uh, a generation, they get a lot of bad press for, you know, for, for being unwilling to delay gratification, for example. But the fact is, maybe they're doing it right. Maybe we should look at them and say, I, I think they're onto something because they want to live in addition to working. They don't want to work like, like, uh, like a machine for 40 years and then in the hopes that they'll get to travel the world later. They want to integrate work and life rather than try and balance it. And I think they're onto something. I think it makes total sense. If, if you can have the right, the, the right balance or the right, um, the right opportunity to live in a way that allows your work to be integrated into your life so that you can make money but also really enjoy yourself, that's terrific. And I think what millennials want, they want freedom. They want to be able to work from home and telecommute sometimes. Mm. They want to have hours that aren't set. The idea of punching a card at 8.30 is, or, or 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock is, is foreign to most millennials. They don't want that. They want to know that, look, I'm being paid to get a job done. I got the job done. And whether it was 3 in the afternoon or 3 in the morning when I got it done, it's on your desk when it has to be. And I, again, I think that's changing. The transient workforce is changing in all kinds of good ways. Um, Eric, in your book, uh, Retire Wealthy, the tools you need to... Um... Well, let's just call it retire wealthy. So I can get another question here. Sure, sorry sure. about sorry about that. You can throw it no, in no, your it's answer. Fine. Um, you know, you talk about um, taking inventory. Where you're going begins with knowing where you are. And is that basically a strategy to know your overall? I mean, that's that's obviously good advice across multiple industries and things like that and whatever you're doing. But you got to know where you are if you, if and then figure out where you want to go and, and fill, fill in the pieces. Uh, is that is that what you mean by that? Well, yes, and, and you have to be not only honest with yourself, but transparent with your partner, with your spouse. You know, it, it makes no sense to be hiding a credit card from your wife or husband. Um, it, you have to be transparent. You have to sometimes you take your lumps for decisions you've made in the past that aren't great. But if you're going to be a team, you got to work together. And I think this idea of taking inventory is let's put everything on the table and then figure out where we're headed and let's, let's maximize the resources we have. Because even if you're Bill Gates, resources are finite. They might feel infinite to us, but they're still finite. There's a number on them. There's a, there's a limit to them. 
And so uh, to me, I think you have to figure out where you are to then start building a path to where you'd like to be at whatever point in time. Right. What about Chapter 5? I was curious about that, pay yourself first. I mean, that's something I teach entrepreneurs. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Because I'm I'm sure that's probably not what you mean there. Well, pay yourself first is a, is a, a concept that flips the script of the, uh, of the average American. What the average American does is they receive their paychecks, they pay all their bills, and if there's something that happens to be left over at the end of the month, they might save it. Paying yourself first says take X percent, whether it's 5 or 10 or 15 or whatever percent, take that first and put it away for yourself long term and then live on the rest. You know, I don't, I don't assign or, or put our clients on a budget. In fact, I don't even encourage them to have one. I think budget's a bit of a dirty word. No one follows them anyway. Businesses need them. Households, it just doesn't work. So what I'd say is let's figure out how much you need to be putting away. Maybe it's 15%. Let's make that happen. And then what you do with the 85% is up to you. You can do anything you want. It, I don't care how you spend it as long as you've put away what you needed to put away. And so by paying yourself first, if you're the first bill every month, all the other bills will have to be paid by whatever's left. Hmm. Okay. Do you um, – it's just – debt is such a huge problem in this country too. Do you help people with formal debt reduction or, or how, do you, how do you approach that? You know, we, we don't have a whole lot of folks approach us in situations where their debt requires triage or, or bankruptcy or, or major work. Uh, however, uh, you know, the first book that I wrote, which was, which was Debt Free for Life, talks about everything from credit counseling services and figuring out which ones are legitimate and which ones are scams and those kinds of things. Um, I, I would say that debt reduction plans are a lot like uh, nutrition plans or workout plans at the gym. Unless you have a trainer telling you to do it, you may not do it. So to me, when, when I give a client a debt reduction plan, we'll go over it together, we'll agree on what makes sense, and I'll give them 12 months of virtual payment coupons. And then we'll sit down again in six or 12 months and say, what's the balance on everything? It should be right where we put it, we're better. And if it's not, that means they haven't, they haven't done what they're supposed to do. And because they're accountable to me, they're much more likely to do it. Do you work with, um small business owners too or I mean you work with a lot of families and things or, or are some of your clients um, entrepreneurs Eric absolutely is that um, is that a different breed I mean it's, it is kind of a different breed when you decide to go out on your own as, as you all as you well know and as I well know is that a different strategy or same principles just different number you know perhaps different scale um, I think it's a completely different breed simply because when you're an entrepreneur and you own the place um, you're the one who doesn't get paid in a bad month. Right. You're the one who has wild variability of income. I mean, people look at you and say, wow, this, this person's very successful. And while wow, they, they own the place and they must be doing great. But the, the fact is there are months where we do great and months where we do lousy. Whereas employees tend to want their paycheck every two weeks or however it's structured, yeah. no matter how the business is doing. So um, for entrepreneurs, the thing that's really hard is variability of cash flows. You know, not knowing what the profit might be at the end of a year, uh, not knowing how taxes might impact a small business owner. Taxes are one of the biggest challenges because if you don't know what your salary is and you're not paid all W-2, you don't necessarily know how to withhold and you're taking a shot at the dark or using safe harbors for tax withholding uh, or for quarterlies, odds are you're going to wind up writing a check in April and you can't always tell how much it's going to be. Even if you're savvy about finances, you, you may still get some surprises April 15th. 
What's what's something that uh, people should think about? You know, we didn't start working with our um, financial plan until fairly late in life. You know, my backstory is I I was lost my job when I was 41. Was out of work for a year and a half. Had cancer. I mean, all kinds of things put us in a horrible position. Then, as I started growing my business, things got better, and we're working with somebody really good now. But for somebody who's just either on a, as you say, every two weeks direct deposit and things like that, what's the right time to start working with someone like yourself? Um, I, I think it's always better sooner rather than later, but you need to find the right fit. There are some there are some financial advisors whose services are so concierge and so high touch that they'll be more expensive than some you know relatively uh, simple situations require. But it, it's no different than how you would choose an attorney or an accountant. You know you, you don't need a, a ten thousand dollar estate plan if you're a young couple. You need a thousand dollar estate plan. Same thing's true with financial planning. The, the more complicated your world is and the more you have going on and the more it's remarriages or business ownership or lots of real estate or other things that complicate, that's when you want a, a financial advisor who's going to look maybe at the big picture. If you're in your 20s, yes, I think it makes sense to hire someone, but you may want to hire someone on a either an hourly basis or a fee basis or some basis where it's not a full-blown um, engagement because you might be overpaying. I mean, sometimes we steer folks away from us and say, you don't need us yet. I would love to work with you in five years, but right now, I honestly think we'd be costing you more than we'd be helping you, and I don't want to do that. That's like the Hippocratic Oath for a doctor. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, Eric, I, re I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, probably talk for another half hour, but clock dictates everything. Where can people get a copy of your book, and, and how can people uh, learn more about you? I heard you mention there you work with people in like a whole bunch of states. They don't have to be yeah, in we Baltimore. Do. No, absolutely not. In fact, we're, we're coast to coast and even have some U.S. citizens abroad. Um, the best place to, to find us is either at brotmanfinancial.com, or you can go to lowtaxbook.com, and there's an ebook that I just wrote on four strategies that almost every American can use to pay less in taxes. And it's a free download, and if you go there, it'll also point you to all of our resources. So it's lowtaxbook.com. Awesome. Eric, thanks so much for being my special guest. Really appreciate it. Jim, I enjoyed it. Happy sailing. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, folks, that wraps up this very special interview with Eric Brotman. Remember to uh, join me in my free Facebook group, Build Your Dream Business Now. That's dreambizgroup.com, dreambizgroup.com. Come back this time next week for another great interview. Until then, this is Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach, and you take good care. Now it's time to go implement what you've learned. Great ideas are nice, but results only happen through action and implementation. So stay focused. Kick all distractions to the curb. Sleep a little less if you have to. And create your dream business now so you too can live your dream lifestyle. To learn about building your dream business, join Jim's free Dream Business Facebook community at dreambizgroup.com. That's dreambizgroup.com. See you next week for more Dream Business Radio.